Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In the United States, testosterone prescribing has gone up, tripling over the years 2001 to 2011. This, despite low testosterone or male hypogonadism, the prevalence is roughly staying the same. Additionally, many have been prescribed testosterone without any prior testing. Many of those treated with testosterone actually have a normal initial testosterone level. Across the globe, this increase in prescription trend persists, going up by over 90% in countries like the UK. While some of this is due to increased testing and addressing previously unmet needs, a good portion of this increase is likely due to testosterone being portrayed as the fountain of youth for men on the internet and social media. In this podcast, we'll discuss the physiology of testosterone, how it changes over time, as well as the diagnosis, workup, and treatment of low testosterone. All that and more on this week's episode of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. This podcast is also brought to you by Viore. Viore makes super high quality, versatile clothing to wear both inside and outside of the gym for men and women. Again, my favorite are the core shorts and the rise tee. I've been super impressed with the core shorts and their longevity for now about four months that I've been training in them. No pilling, no tears. They're super stretchy. And honestly, they look great both inside and outside the gym. Same thing with the rise tee. Every time I wash it, it comes out of the laundry, perfect, ready to wear, whether I'm I'm going to the gym or just wearing it casually. So check them out. Uh, They also have golf stuff. If you're a golfer and you're wondering, hey, uh, what sort of stuff could I wear on the course uh, that would double, you know, in my day-to-day life? It's really really good stuff it looks clean and uh you know look good feel good play well that's uh that's my motto so go to viore uh all of their sources are sustainable and they offset their carbon footprint 100 percent. you can go to their website viore.com backslash barbell and get 20 percent off your first order all right we're here back on the barbell medicine podcast with the second most handsome doctor in north america dr austin baraki what's going on dude hey man uh glad to be back you know, I think there's some podcasts out there. They have like catchphrases or like drops that they place like periodically throughout the the thing, if, especially if it's live. Yours would just be a collection of all of your size prior, <laughs> like while I'm introducing you. It would just be <sighs> so glad. Yeah. Well, I'm happy. I'm happy that you're here. Uh, we're going to talk about, as uh, indicated in the introduction, testosterone replacement therapy. This is a very dude heavy uh, a dude focused podcast, but you know, if you're of the fairer sex and you're listening to this and you're like, how does this pertain to me? It's like, look, if you're a coach trainer, you're a subject matter expert within the physical culture space, if you're a medical professional, this stuff's going to be interesting to you. I think, I hope anyway. So stay tuned. Uh, any updates for the crowd about what's going on, uh, with you, you get, you guys doing good. Uh, going to be getting back in the hospital at the end of this week and training actually seems to be maybe starting to go okay for the first time in a while. So what can I, I, know, what can I say? I know when you start posting your training, like things are going good. 
like, <laughs> like it's not just a highlight reel but you're like no one cares if i'm deadlifting 500 unless it's for 15 or something like exactly, that. exactly yeah, yeah, yeah that's <laughs> not which is not true <laughs> which is not true people care people do care but i understand where you're at you're like oh i guess i am strong i guess it, I'll... It, yeah it might not be so much whether i think other people care it's like it reflects how much my caring <laughs> yeah 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 you That's know, fair. Like I don't care if I deadlift 500 for anything less than <laughs> whatever 10 or 15. So yeah, yeah. You know, once it starts exceeding that, I'm like, okay, maybe I'll start carrying again. Yeah. Uh, this block that I'm currently on has a lot of supersets, okay. and I I've been prizing myself, priding myself on my cardiorespiratory fitness as mm-hmm. of late. And it's true, like my per week, I'm probably in that 1500 ish met minutes per week. I'm doing like a lot of conditioning. Yeah. Again, the goal, like, don't suck on a dirt bike because to me it's like dangerous like if i get tired on a dirt bike i'm like well p- the smart part of me was like slow down sir mm-hmm. yep but you know the aggro part is like send it you're <laughs> good to go and so i'd rather just not get tired uh but in any case the super it's a totally different thing with the supersets like that sort of uh, acute muscular failure and then whoop, back on another thing more muscular failure it's a different thing and obviously people listening to this are like yeah dude supersets are different and i'm like i just have never been this strong while doing supersets if that makes sense I like yeah. like early on in training i'm like oh i gotta do a superset and it's like the mm-hmm. the weights actually aren't that heavy and yeah. now i'm like all right i got an rdl you know in the 400s and then i gotta go do some hamstring curls and oh boy like, yeah. i've never yeah. felt a pump like this so yeah that's fun i've signif- also significantly increased my conditioning in the past few months i have a, a concept two rower that i acquired earlier this year and i've been doing that probably about five times a week or so for a fair Ooh. amount of time just very low intensity though but uh, it's been going it's been going fine it's been going fine i will tell you the bro tip here concept two makes like an ipad mount that goes on the concept two rower yeah mine came with one Oh, okay. So I just have a cell phone. Like mine came with a cell phone mount, not the oh, okay. iPad mount. I see. And so once I upgraded to the iPad mount, my, my world, <laughs> I, I was transported. My world yeah. changed. <laughs> so if you're listening to this and you're like, how do you make it fun? I'm like, I'm watching YouTube videos. I'm watching documentaries. I'm getting smarter while I'm getting fitter. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I did read this thing. Uh, uh, it, I think it was in Steve Magnus's book, like do hard things. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about how like elite level endurance athletes, they don't, use music they don't use distractions from like this hurts or i feel that they want to tune in they want to focus in on like that pain and i'm like i guess i'm not elite because i don't (laughs) (laughs) i mean i just compare it to like what when i was swimming there wasn't really a distraction available your face is in the water you're just trying to like breathe there's no you know that was like the early days of like you know really really crappy quality like in-ear mp3 players that people would get which i never got or used that was like not the thing at the time um and so yeah that was most of my training was just like effectively in silence face in the water and you know you are you have no choice but to like be in tune with that kind of thing but nowadays with respect to the conditioning i do yeah i'm not trying to do that (laughs) you don't want to suffer i wonder if there's some sort of like waterproof like ear like airpods now i'm sure this stuff is way better now i'm just saying like back then when i was doing that that was like the first model where it was like you could fit probably i don't know maybe 30 songs or something and i don't know it's like the very first mp3 player for pools but yeah i'm sure things are better now i still wish i had one of those ipod what is it minis the touch the little like tiny little guys that clipped on a piece of gum almost yeah 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 yeah. i wish i had one of those uh in any case 
We have new content on the website. Uh, we published an article on belts. Everything you want to know about belts. If you listen to the podcast, you have a good sense of this stuff. But sometimes reading the written word, you know, really drives it home. And there's some additional information there. So you can check that out. Also, if you're not subscribed to our newsletter yet, you should do so. So every month we just fire out uh, a newsletter filled with original content. This one's going to be on artificial sweeteners. And yes, we did do a podcast on artificial sweeteners, non-sugar sweeteners. But this one has an additional take on this brand new paper that came out showing that a particular metabolite potentially or contaminant of sucralose, which is Splenda, might be mutagenic. Some people like po- some person posted that in our Facebook group and it's been making the Twitter rounds like, is this particular causing thing- DNA damage? I think that's what the claim was, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's the, what is it? Sucralose six acetate or mm. whatever, uh, which by the way, is not in Splenda at all. Like it's not in there. It doesn't get metabolized to that. Just whatever. And then there's a host, there's a host of problems with this, with the study and the claims like, oh, you should avoid this sort of thing, but you got to sign up for the newsletter to get that information. And then, uh, I, I wonder what the difference in the effect size would be if it, let's say it does cause some, some, uh, amount of DNA damage. I wonder how that compares with the amount of DNA damage folks get from just like going out in the sun yeah. without, without sunscreen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they found evidence that there was some like DNA damage at very high levels, uh, which is like above what you would, it would be like 60 something packets a day of Splenda would be what you would need to get to that dose. Uh, And even that it was not correlated to any clinical outcome thing one. And again, it's not in Splenda. It's not in like, (laughs) anyway. All right. So I'll talk about that more in the newsletter. So just go over the website after about 10 seconds, a little pop-up window will pop up and you just put your email in there and I'll send you some information. Uh, that would be fun. Also, we have live in-person seminars still coming up at the end of this month. Our pain and rehab team will be in Bozeman, Montana. They're doing it there. I know there's some spots left and I feel like Bozeman in the summer. I don't know. It probably, it probably is. It's probably going to be epic. Like every time I go look for stock images of Bozeman, Montana, (laughs) I'm like, I want to go there. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then our pain and rehab team will also be in Los Angeles in September. We, uh, for our traditional two-day health and fitness, health and performance seminar, will be in at Untamed Strength in Sacramento, California in October, and we'll also be down under in Sydney, Australia, for, for those who didn't catch that accent. We'll be there in January of 2024. I don't know what else is coming for 2024, uh, but that's our seminar schedule. So if you want to join us or our pain and rehab team at a live in-person seminar, check out the link in the description below after you listen to this podcast. We also dropped some new merchandise. We're calling it the Street Tea. I don't... I don't know where that name came from, but let me just tell this is my favorite shirt that we've ever made. It's the oversized fit is uh, not only very flattering, but also very comfortable to train in. So like some people like the tri-blend stuff or whatever. It's like stretchy and form fitting or whatever. But I will tell you a knurled barbell on your back through tri-blend stuff is not particularly comfortable. This thing, you could put one of those cheese grater bars on my back. I'd be fine totally fine. It's just, it's some, it's something about the material. I just, yeah, I, really, really nice. So check that out on our website. I know we have limited supplies left when we uh, dropped them, they sold out uh, pretty quickly. So I know there's just still some sizes left. And lastly, we're dropping some new templates uh, this week. The bodybuilding two template will come out. Uh, that'll have some interesting stuff like a dual progression. So people are looking at that and an additional updated ebook with more stuff on how to get bigger muscles. Uh, and we're going to have some educational material dropping in, in the near future as well. So stay tuned to that. If you're signed up for the newsletter, you're going to get updates along with, again, this original content. So, you know, do all that. All right.
enough self-aggrandizement. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about testosterone replacement therapy. All right. So let's start with the overview here. Like how do we even make tea? And uh, I'll use tea and total testosterone back and forth a few times. So don't at me on this. I'm just trying to not say testosterone, you know, a thousand times in this podcast. Uh, we tip, we did two episodes, I believe it was like 102 and 103 on testosterone. Now that's like two and a half hours of material. And I think that uh, I would say those podcasts are still valid. I like the material in there or whatever. The thing what we didn't do is we didn't go through like a stepwise, like here is how somebody would be diagnosed, worked up, treated, monitored, et cetera, for testosterone replacement therapy. We also didn't address the question, are testosterone levels dropping in the population over time? Just that's a very popular to say these days. And so we're going to get a little deeper uh, this time around and hopefully uh, give you guys the information that you've been searching for. So a little overview here. Uh, so there is this HPT axis, and that's an acronym that stands for hypothalamus pituitary testes. That's the HPT. All right. So to start, we have gonadotropin releasing hormone, which is GNRH is produced by the hypothalamus that travels through the blood to the anterior pituitary gland in a pulsatile fashion. So GNRH is released from the hypothalamus, goes to the anterior uh, portion of the pituitary gland in a pulsatile fashion. So higher levels uh, early in the morning, lower levels at night, and makes the anterior pituitary gland release uh, luteinizing hormone, which is LH, and also follicle stimulating hormone, which is FSH. So that comes from the anterior pituitary gland. Again, both of those things go into the bloodstream and then go to their targets, which are the testes. Uh, LH uh, acts on the Leydig cells within the testes, and that produces about 95% of the circulating testosterone. So once LH binds to these Leydig cells in the testes, they uh, effectively trigger those cells to produce testosterone. Um, there's about 400 million of these cells in the testes. And uh, yeah, in general. They produce testosterone. That's 95% of the circulating testosterone of men. The other 5% is from the adrenal gland, uh, which is just a piece of fatty tissue sitting on top of the kidneys. FSH, on the other hand, follicle-stimulating hormone, that travels to the Sertoli cells, also in the testes, and that's more involved in spermatogenesis, which is a fancy way of saying making sperm. Austin's nodding. That's what you don't see. If you're listening to this. <laughs> this would be me like nodding in agreement with one of my residents walking me through the physiologic pathway here. Yeah, yes, I agree like, so far. Thanks. <laughs> uh, so in any case, testosterone itself, as produced by the Leydig cells of the testes, has a negative feedback at multiple levels. So level number one on the anterior pituitary gland. So basically it signals to the anterior pituitary gland, yo, we got enough testosterone. We don't need as much LH. Chill, chill down, bro. It also has negative feedback at the level of the hypothalamus saying, yo dog, T levels are good. Cut, cut back on the GNRH. Uh, so if testosterone levels are low, the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland both get signaled like not enough T in the system. Let's pump out some more LH, some more GNRH. But if testosterone levels are elevated uh, or normal, the, both of those uh, uh, glands basically uh, are tempered down or attenuated. Yeah, that's the that's that's probably the most important thing to understand about this topic, and also just endocrinology in general, like hormone signaling in general, is this kind of concept of, of feedback. Not only for understanding how the system works, but also more importantly because it has relevance for how we interpret the blood tests that we get on people. And so, you know, we will interpret a low testosterone measurement differently 
depending on whether at the same time FSH and LH levels are high or if they are normal or low. Those lead us in two different directions of trying to kind of localize where the problem is and being able to interpret those tests accurately requires a good understanding of this feedback system. And the reason I'm emphasizing this up front is because as people might know from prior podcasts, I'm kind of a stickler for testing and accurate diagnosis. And a lot of places um, that are, you know, not practicing great medicine might test and diagnose people with testosterone problems really without an adequate evaluation of these other aspects of the system to try to identify actually where the problem is and maybe go down a different route than just putting the person on testosterone replacement. So that's why understanding this feedback is important and we'll come back and probably reiterate it when it comes to the test interpretation. Yeah. So you can have problems at any different point along this sort of pathway. So for example, if there's a problem with the testes themselves, meaning that they're getting the signal from the LH and FSH, but not producing testosterone, that's called primary hypogonadism. Uh, and Or you could have a problem at the level of the hypothalamus and or the pituitary, uh, which basically means you're not getting enough GnRH and or not enough LH and FSH, and that's called secondary or tertiary hypogonadism. And at this point, that's kind of an academic distinction. We'll get into like why that matters later on. But effectively, if you have a problem at any point or multiple points along the uh, along the way, you can have signs and symptoms of hypogonadism or testosterone deficiency syndrome, depending on which nomenclature you tend to prefer. Uh, but yeah, if you have low testosterone uh, because of one of those, it kind of differentiates which path you go down uh, as far as where the problem is. Uh, in any case, most testosterone circulates in one of three forms. So form number one is when testosterone is bound to a uh, protein called steroid hormone binding globulin, which you might know as SHBG. The thought, there are two hypotheses here that bound, well, hypothesis number one is that bound testosterone, if it's bound to either SHBG or as we'll see uh, in the next form, albumin, uh, some people think, hey, that testosterone does not work in any tissues because it's bound up. It's bound to this protein, doesn't do anything. That's hypothesis one. Hypothesis two is that, hey, those two bound types of testosterone do work just a little bit less active and takes longer for them to do things. Uh, but still free testosterone, the third form would be like the most active. So two different hypotheses. We don't have great data on this, but that's, there's kind of like warring factions here within this sort of endocrinology testosterone field. So in any case, form number one is protein bound to steroid hormone binding globulin, basically testosterone floating around by itself is kind of fragile. And so it needs to be carried around by a protein. So that's form number one. There is a second form where uh, testosterone is bound to albumin. It's a little bit weaker bond than when it's bond bonded to steroid hormone binding globulin. So again, this may be active in some tissues, uh, but it, it takes a little bit of time for it to dissociate from albumin. And then there's free testosterone. Finally, the third form, it's about one to 4% of all total testosterone. It's supposed to be active on all tissues. Again, that hypothesis that it's the only active form. There's some controversy around that. Uh, and this is relatively difficult to measure accurately in labs. And we'll see that there are multiple formulae and different ways to like sort of get a free testosterone number. Uh, you might also be familiar with a term called bioavailable testosterone, and that is the combination of testosterone that's bound to albumin plus the calculated free testosterone 
fraction. So again, there's just a bunch of different formula that you can use to end up getting different sort of values depending on which type of testosterone uh, that you're measuring. But total testosterone, most common measurement of testosterone, you are encaps- uh, basically capturing all of these three different forms, the one that's bind to, bound to SHBG, the one that's bound to albumin, and free testosterone. Austin, you uh, you ever just check your testosterone? Just <laughs> I've had zero testosterone measurements in my life. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> just, all right. So no personal experience measuring. Nope. <laughs> Got it. I've measured it in patients, but not uh, not of my own. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. So let's move on here to what are normal testosterone levels in men? So the normal range, again, this and this varies on the laboratory itself, but most uh, different guidelines that are available for talking about normal testosterone levels, male hypogonadism, et cetera, say that the normal range of total testosterone is between 300 to 800 nanograms per deciliter. Sometimes that upper bound moves up to a thousand. Again, it's laboratory dependent. So each lab will have its own sort of normal range, but 300 to 800 is what you're going to see in the literature most often. Sometimes again, that creeps up to a thousand. Uh, there's analytical variance which occurs due to differences in the testing methods, the equipment, uh, which results uh, uh, or analyte values are used or measured. And in total testosterone, that variance is 4.3%. There's also biological variance uh, in total testosterone levels. And biological variation is that which occurs when the same test is run repeatedly on an individual using the appropriate methodology and you just get different values. It just varies. Uh, And that biological variance for total testosterone levels is 12.4%. So putting this in a practical example, if you measured a total testosterone value for an individual at 500, you could measure it between 350 up to 675 on the second test and it may not actually be any different because both those differences are explained by the combination of both analytical and biological variations. So there, if somebody goes, it was 500 the first time and I tested the second time, it's 350, it's lower. It's like, it actually might be the same. In fact, it's likely to be the same. I can't confidently say one way or the other and neither can anybody else. Yeah. And I would, I think this is a super important thing to emphasize. And this applies to a lot of other tests. I think I just answered a question on our forum today about somebody who was concerned that their blood sugar tests had increased from like, you know, 94 to 102 or something like that. And it's like, I don't really interpret those as being significantly different um, due to combinations of analytical variation and biological variation. Um, I actually shared a a resource on this from the BMJ um, that maybe would be worth us including a link to that tool in the show notes because it has a whole bunch of tests and it will actually show you um, the variation and you can put in two different numbers of tests and it'll tell you, is this different enough for us to be confident that they are actually different values or are they kind of within each other's error bar? Because, you know, you gave a pretty, I would say a relatively large example of a difference, but people interpret smaller differences as being important all the time. They're like, my testosterone was 440 on this one test, and now it's like 500 on this test. I'm like, that doesn't mean anything to me, honestly, because I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm proud of you. I'm happy for you. But, you know, realistically, I cannot be super confident that that represents a real increase or quote unquote improvement, if that's what you're looking for, or whatever the case is. This stuff is all super, super messy. And that's part of why, among many other reasons, where we advise against people just getting these things checked, because it's, challenging enough to interpret them, even when they are being measured, you know, in an appropriate context, if they're being measured for no reason, that makes it even harder to interpret these things or to interpret changes in them over time. 
Yep. Yeah, the resource is called Your Results May Vary, The Imprecision of Medical Measurements. And I have linked that in the show notes. So there's a bunch of different tests that yeah, they have. It's like, an awesome tool. <laughs> yeah, cool tool. Cool tool. I love that. Uh, okay, so that's you know testosterone and its normal levels and how it's produced. So what is the natural trajectory of total testosterone over time? So in general, in the fourth and fifth decade of life, testosterone levels tend to decline in men. And so a recent study of 1500 men aged 20 to 44 had their total testosterone levels measured and sort of the average value, which the way these researchers measured it, they called it a middle tertile range. And so just to explain that a tertile just means they split up the data into thirds and sort of the middle range, the middle third, uh, spanned from these values. So for individuals aged 20 to 24, that sort of middle range spanned between 409 to 558 nanograms per deciliter. And then 20 years later, 40 to 44-year-olds, it ranged from 350 to 473 nanograms per deciliter. A few things. So one, yes, that does appear to be lower. But again, if we go back to that analytical and biological variance, we would sort of expect some noise in there. Um, so I wouldn't say it's a huge difference, but it does, again, uh, appear to decline, most notably starting in the fourth and fifth decade. Uh, as far as why these things are declining, that is a far more interesting question. Um, so for example, the European Male Aging Study, which is... Uh, the acronym is not great. It's called EMAS. I feel like they could have done better with that, but <laughs> it is what it is. Uh, they found that the overwhelming contribution to the apparent age-related decline in testosterone levels is likely not due to chronological aging per se, but rather in the accumulation of age-associated comorbidities such as obesity, diabetes, etc., resulting in the suppression of luteinizing hormone or LH secretion. That's one of those hormones from the anterior pituitary gland goes to the testes, says, hey, testes, pump out testosterone. And so if you're accumulating diseases like obesity, type 2 diabetes, other inflammatory conditions, and or taking medications that are known to interact with this stuff. Yeah, or alcohol. Alcohol, opioids. Oh, yep. Look, we're going to get into all of this. <laughs> Sleep apnea. Yes. Yeah, totally. And your testosterone levels are likely to decline, mainly through a suppression of LH secretion. So I don't know that I would expect testosterone to decline with regular healthy aging if you wanted to like put quotes around healthy. Um, but yeah, if you accumulate uh, diseases and, and different uh, medical conditions as you age, which is pretty normal uh, in, to, in modern day, then yeah, levels can decline. There's two other data sets that basically have converging evidence showing the same exact thing. The survey on prevalence in East China for metabolic diseases and risk factors called the SPECT study, a much better acronym, showed the exact same relationship. And in an Australian study of fit, healthy, community-dwelling, older men found similar levels, so not statistically different, uh, total testosterone levels in older men compared to younger men. Basically saying if you maintained your health, again, throughout your uh, lifespan, testosterone levels are likely to be the same. And so that's, you know, people say, oh, testosterone levels go down as you age. That seems to be what we see in the real world. But as far as why that's happening, it's not just like oh, the clocks are ticking on the old right. testes. Yeah. <laughs> Can't pump out the T. Uh, it's more so like, yeah, there's other stuff going on under the hood, um, which leads us to this next question, which I think is. I mean, it's just gotten so pervasive. It's almost assumed to be true. 
It has become popular to say that testosterone levels are declining in a population over time in an age-independent manner, basically saying something like, hey, an average 22-year-old male today has roughly the same testosterone levels as a 67-year-old man had in year 2000. There's been various permutations of this or like, oh, testosterone levels are half of what they were in the 70s or, you know, something like that. And people will then start hemming and hawing about uh, all sorts of things like plastics or estrogens in the diet and weird stuff. It's right? the libs. Yeah. Like, honestly, <laughs> if you voted for Biden, your T levels are low, like something like that. Some permutation of this. And so, all right, well, now we have a clinical question. Let's just go see if there's any answers in the literature. So... I could not find any study predating 2007 investigating this. Uh, and in fact, this first study from uh, uh, Travison at Al in 2007, they even said that they're like, look, there's no data on this. And so if anybody was saying this prior to 2007, I'm not personally aware of it. But also if they were, it's like, where are you getting this from? You just like <laughs> felt it. I mean, Twitter was probably around then, but I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right. But yeah, multiple, many of these tweets like, and Facebook posts and, and, and other social media stuff has gone viral. And so, yeah, it, again, it's just like assumed to be true. So let's look at some data on this. Uh, so this study uh, from Travison et al. in 2007, they calculated testosterone levels obtained from individuals of similar ages at different times. And the time interval was 20 years apart. So effectively what they did is they looked at uh, individuals who were between the ages of 45 and 65 in the 80s, 1983, like something like that. And then 20 years later, they did the same thing, same age group, same community. And they're like, what's the secular trend of testosterone in these individuals? It was over 1,700 men living in and around Boston. The average age was 58 years old at uh, both times of sampling. At time period one, the average total testosterone level was 501 nanograms per deciliter, and half of the samples were distributed between 392 to 614 nanograms per deciliter. 20 years later, the average total testosterone level was 391 nanograms per deciliter, and half of the samples, again, were distributed between 310 and 507 nanograms per deciliter. So it does look like it went down a little bit if you just look at those values straight on. But again, if you compare just the the average values 501 to 391 and you look at the analytical and biological variation, the, they're effectively the same. Now granted these aren't the same people, so you're not going to get that same biological variation. Uh, yeah, and having having higher numbers of samples will obviously tend to help increase your confidence of real changes between them, but of course regardless there's and you know some some element of variation that's going to be in the data you just use bigger numbers of people to try to you know uh wash out some of that systematic error i suppose yeah <laughs> but for it's not 50 percent right yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's not a 50 percent decline okay and again these sort of age uh you know standardized testosterone values that depends on who you're testing are these healthy individuals with no disease uh, uh, comorbidities, uh, for example, or are they just this average person, you know? And so what they found, what the researchers found is that there was a market increase over time in chronic illness incidents. So things like obesity and overweight, type two diabetes, etc. There was a decrease in smoking, which can actually lower testosterone, but there was a market increase about, uh, 35% higher incidence of so at least one chronic medical condition when they tested them 20 years later or the new sample 20 years later. So already you're thinking, you're like, well, that kind of makes sense. If you have more chronic disease, more obesity, more overweight, 
yeah, that is a plausible explanation. And in fact, that's what's found in two other data sets. The only other two data sets I could find that evaluated this issue. So it was 100,000 plus sample size uh, men in Israel uh, measured from uh, the first time point was 2006. The follow-up uh, time point was 2019. And they look at like the secular trend of total testosterone levels. Yeah, it went down a little bit, about a 10% drop, but again, way more chronic disease at this latter time period, because again, the diseases tend to, uh, particularly with the westernized dietary patterns, insufficient physical activity, things of that nature, uh, yeah, tend to be on the rise. Uh, same thing happened in Danish men uh, when comparing a, a time period 1980 to year 2000, over 5,000 samples see the same relationship. In fact, in this Danish study that was published by Anderson in 2007, the authors concluded adjustment for concurrent secular increase in body mass index reduced the observed cohort slash period related changes in testosterone, which were no longer significant. And it's like, yeah, dude, on, in general, people are gaining fat mass and we know that to be like, uh, heavily involved in sort of testosterone physiology. And so I kind of would expect T levels to go down in, in a secular trend. I just don't think it's due to some like weird environmental uh, sort of cause or like the BPAs, the plastics, the micro, the estrogens, the whatever. It's more like people are gaining weight. Yeah. Yeah. And there, and there's probably multiple reasons why it could go down. But if you have a data set like this of like thousands of men and you observe a decrease that appears real, but as soon as you adjust for BMI, it disappears. Like the significance of that disappears, then it you know is adequately explained. You're just measuring a rise in obesity via testosterone measurements, like in a different way. Now, if they adjusted for BMI and there was still some significant decline, then you're like, okay, well, what residual you know uh, effect do I need to explain by some other mechanism? Is it because of something else? Is it because of some exposure or whatever the case is? But it's like once it disappears, it's like, well, I guess that was it then. <laughs> yeah, and even if it didn't uh, totally disappear, right? Because data, you know is messy and statistics can be manipulated all sorts of different ways. The thing here to take home is that it didn't go down by 50%. It didn't go like, it's not half. All right. The 22 year old and the 67 year old, you know, did not have the same testosterone levels. It's if it's gone down at all, and that's a real decrease, it's by a little bit. And to what clinical effect? I don't know. So the TLDR on this, normal testosterone levels vary, but are most commonly between 300 to 800 nanograms per deciliter. There's significant analytical and biological variation, which is very underappreciated when it comes to interpreting changes in blood tests and also just the values themselves. The secular decline in testosterone levels may be real or artifact, but if it's real, it's most likely due to increased overweight and obesity prevalence, alcohol use, chronic illness, and similar. Uh, and so that's kind of where we're starting from. Now, when we start to talk about male hypogonadism, uh, which we'll move into our next section here on episode 228 with the different types of testosterone measurements. So Austin, I know you don't work in a primary care, care clinic. You're in the hospital and measuring a testosterone level in the hospital, the lab would be like, why are you doing this? <laughs> I actually think there may have been a couple times when I checked it, but I also do some primary care telemedicine. And so I'm very open to measuring in that context. But yeah, you're right. Most for the most part. <laughs> for the most part. Yeah. In general, no one's coming in from testosterone toxicity. Yeah. It'd be like, like a very weird, like, you know, male with unexplained osteoporosis or something would probably be, yeah. you know, one situation where I might fracture. Think of that. Yeah. 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 Uh, so when measuring testosterone levels, three aspects should really be considered. Uh, what form of testosterone is being measured? What time during the day it's being obtained? And then how often? 
uh, should it be tested? And so there are multiple different forms. Let's start with that. So one is total testosterone. And Austin, if I'm guessing, if you have somebody who comes in with like an unexplained low bone mineral density and like a fr- non-traumatic fracture, you're like, all right, we're going to send a total testosterone, a total T level. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Okay. So this is an antibody test that can measure values between two to 1500, depending on the exact test. Now I've seen multiple tests that are outside the reference range. Yep. And usually these are not low. Yeah. In general, it's like, wow, this person has way more muscle mass than me. <laughs> <laughs> and they're above 1500. So that's that would be an example of somebody using exogenous testosterone levels at higher than normal doses and they're above the reference range. I've also seen it on people uh, who are on TRT, so testosterone replacement therapy, who like injected in the arm where the venipuncture was done directly before the test. And so it's like, look, man, you got all that tea just floating around. <laughs> yeah, that might that might happen. So in any case, this is a monoclonal antibody test. It's effectively uh, an, uh, antibodies, a protein that combine to testosterone, and it gives you a readout. Pretty accurate. Their second form of testosterone that can be measured, uh, it's usually calculated, though, is called free testosterone. And it's calculated based on this vermulian formula where you know the steroid hormone binding globulin, the SHBG the albumin levels, and then the total testosterone levels is plugged in this equation and you get calculated free testosterone. It's not really an accurate measure of actual circulating unbound or free testosterone, uh, but it does seem to correlate a little bit more strongly with different, uh, uh, so androgenic actions like bone mineral density, sexual function, and various levels of like hematopoiesis, so red blood cells, uh, hematocrit, hemoglobin, things of that nature. But in any case, you're not really measuring free testosterone directly. Um, one interesting study, this is back to that EMAS, that European male aging study, it was 3,000 euro dudes. They didn't have any hypogonadism, uh, like as far as signs uh, and symptoms. Um, and they were followed for four years. So no, no hypogonadism at baseline. They were followed for four years. And they were giving these questionnaires uh, four years later, on average, about sexual, physical, and psychological function. In general, those with normal calculated free testosterone lacked clinical characteristics of hypogonadism, whereas those with low uh, calculated free te- uh, free testosterone were the only ones who had signs, despite having like a normal total testosterone. It just suggests that although the free testosterone value that you get by calculating it using this vermulian formula may not be a, like a very accurate number, it may correlate better with the sort of androgenic uh, function, particularly in individuals who have abnormal steroid hormone binding globulin levels. And those conditions that cause like abnormal steroid hormone binding globulin SHBG levels are numerous. Obesity, overweight, diabetes, hypo or hyperthyroidism, kidney disease, liver disease, HIV, the list goes on and on and on. And so having that additional value may be useful for somebody who goes into uh, get tested uh, and their first test may be abnormal. The second time around, you might want to get a calculated free testosterone just to sort of better characterize uh, what's going on. But we'll get into that when we talk about testing and diagnosis. Uh, Austin, you want to talk about this equilibrium dialysis technique? 
Yeah. So you had mentioned that free testosterone can be, you know, determined through a calculation, uh, mm -hmm. assuming you've measured SHBG and albumin levels and testosterone levels. But the other method and is is known as this equilibrium dialysis technique. What that exactly means or entails, I cannot speak to. However, I know from having from having gone through, you know, guidelines and and some of the evidence on these tests is if you are going to obtain a free testosterone measurement, that is supposedly a preferred method to do so. Yeah. Um, and I will say that I uh, don't think that it is often necessary to obtain this for all patients um, when making you know routine decisions in practice. Um, and the other thing I'll add, just relating to you know these tests in general, is I learned about this um, actually when I went to the American College of Physicians conference just a couple months ago in San Diego. There was a lecture by a you know an expert in this field, and he described how the CDC in recent years has started a basically a lab standardization program, testosterone standardization program. Um, that if you just Google that CDC testosterone standardization, it'll be the the first result. I'm sure we can we can provide a link. But basically, you know, because of the recognized issues with reliability of tests, they started this program to improve accuracy of measurements, to improve reliability of measurements, and to institute methods to monitor lab accuracy and reliability over time. And so, you know, on the diabetes podcast, we did relatively recently, I think it was like the metabolic syndrome in athletes might've been that one. We talked about how there was a similar program instituted for hemoglobin A1C measurements to standardize them because there were such problems with different labs running them differently. And there are lots of labs that are like this, where there needs to be some sort of standardization method so that you can reliably compare values obtained mm -hmm. across different labs. And so because of the how fraught testosterone testing has been, the CDC started this kind of a standardization program. And um, they have a listing of labs that are participating in this particular program. And so yeah. it was suggested when I attended this, uh, this talk, um, that if you're going to be, you know, ordering these tests for patients, if you're a healthcare professional, or, you know, perhaps if you're a motivated patient, and you want to um, make sure that the measurements you're getting are reliable, that uh, using a lab that is on this list or participating in this uh, standardization program would be advisable. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that and I was like, ooh, interesting. Yeah. Because effectively, if you're sending people to different labs that have different, like, you know, assays and different non standardized techniques, you're either getting not only inaccurate data, but like difficult to compare and you're just delaying treatment, you know, or delaying workup of an individual because you have to get them tested again at the same lab. Yeah. So. You might be just magnifying some of that analytical variation unnecessarily. So yep. I would, would recommend using standardized uh, methods like this. Yeah. Also, just a reminder, bioavailable testosterone, again, is the combination of albumin bound testosterone and free testosterone. So that's another thing you may see on a test. Uh, and again, this and the calculated free or directly measured free testosterone may or may not be better for monitoring. We just don't really know yet. And that's kind of reflected in these different guidelines. There are, uh, man, when I counted, it was nine different international guidelines that I had reviewed for this podcast. And I was like, couldn't y'all just get together? And like yeah. come up with one thing and they're yes. like, nah, dog, we want our own. So <laughs> here we are. Uh, okay. So that's the t form of testosterone that you can get uh, measured. Second important thing again is the time of day. And so we're supposed to measure testosterone levels between 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. in a fasted state. And so uh, you often hear that the production of testosterone is diurnal and the production of LH, luteinizing hormone, and follicle-stimulating hormone, FSH, is pulsatile. Um, so, but diurnal is a fancy way of saying daily. So it just happens every day, and testosterone levels fluctuate throughout the day, reaching a maximum of around 8 a.m. and a minimum value around 8 p.m. 
So in general, we're measuring it at 8 to 10 a.m. Getting a testosterone level at noon, I don't know what to make of that, and neither does anyone else either. But people are doing it. Or 5 p.m. or something silly like that. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't do that. The more curious <laughs> thing, and I tried finding some data on this. It's like, what about people who work like nights, for example? Like, are they still supposed to measure at 8 to 10 a.m.? Like, does this pulsatile and diurnal variation, like, change the game? And I'm like, oh, I feel like I'm not going to come up with an evidence-based answer. So I don't know. Yeah, I would probably expect it if I had to guess to follow their sleep-wake cycle you know, after they, mm-hmm. they flip. Um, the other thing to point out is that some of this variation, you know, higher in the morning, lower in the evening tends to get a bit muted and somewhat go away with, with aging. Um, still though, I would not use that to say, oh yeah, it's fine. My older person who's getting this checked, I'm just going to do it at 4 PM. Cause it's fine. I would still, basically the idea is that if we check it at a time when we expect it to be at its highest and the person's body is capable of generating a normal, you know, blood concentration of this, then we can be reasonably confident that the machinery is in working order. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of the, the idea of checking it during that particular moment in time. Yeah. So as far as frequency goes, that's the third thing to consider. Basically, if a single value taken with the 8 to 10 a.m. thing is normal, we can assume that testosterone production is normal. That doesn't mean that the person's symptoms and signs are like, you know, just set them home, they're good to go, uh, but just probably need to go down a different sort of pathway for the workup. If the single first value is low or borderline low, it should be repeated once or twice. And again, it just depends on which guidelines you're looking at and what they recommend. It's just important to confirm that the person has low total testosterone concentrations because 30% of men with an initially low testosterone concentration will have a normal one the second time. And so as far as the time interval there, the British Society for Sexual Medicine recommends a four-week interval, which I don't know where they came up with that it number. It's like no, a very large There's period. no citation. Yeah. Hey, there's no yeah. citation there. They're just yeah. like, we yeah. recommend four weeks. It's like, okay, interesting. The International Society for Sexual Medicine recommends a one-week interval, and the Endocrine Society in the United States doesn't have a specific time interval. They're just like, just measure it again, bro. And we're like, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> So, yeah, the know. other the, the other couple things I would point out here is that you know if you're going to get it checked, uh, it it should be at that right time, preferably fasted if possible, but also not in the setting of like major other issues going on. Like if you're sick, like not the time to get it checked. Um, you know, so many things can can impact this, and so you know perhaps that might be part of maybe that British society's recommendation is like maybe if you're a little sick, then four weeks we can reliably say you're going to be over your cold or something like that. I don't know, just making it up, but but um, so so that's that's one thing. And then the other is that you mentioned, you know, not to say that, okay, like dismissing whatever the person's signs or symptoms were that prompted this test measurement, because step number one, they should have some sign or some symptom or some issue that is leading this to be measured. We do not recommend just widespread screening of people who feel fine, who have no symptoms. But additionally, it is, I have never, ever, (laughs) for a person who is reporting some kind of symptom like this, measured a total testosterone alone in isolation. And that is getting to the point that we'll, I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on later is that a lot of the symptoms can be explained by so many other conditions. And so it is never just the only thing that I'm checking. I'm often want to make just sure an isolated total right. testosterone level, not doing it. I'm making sure they're not anemic, making sure their thyroid functions. Okay. Yeah, maybe yeah, thinking yeah. about their adrenals in certain contexts, maybe thinking about a sleep study, maybe talking about, you know, their, you know, uh, checking their liver function. If I'm worried about alcohol use or all sorts of other things, <laughs> HIV testing, hep C testing, like not to say that everybody needs all of these tests, but it's, you know, it's, it, it's almost always multiple based on the person and what they're reporting for which clinical conditions could fit this kind of presentation. Yeah. 
I'm trying to think of like what the worst like set of isolated tests would be that would just make your head actually explode. <laughs> and I'm thinking like total testosterone, vitamin D, <laughs> reverse T3. <laughs> like so that you're like, and then like a, a boron level and you're like, yeah, I yeah. don't know what to do with any of this. Please correlate clinically. You're like a radiologist, yeah, yeah. you know? Yes, yes. Okay. So with all that background, now we get into what is male hypogonadism and then how to diagnose it, treat it, monitor it, and then we'll wrap up. So definition, male hypogonadism is a clinical syndrome that results from the failure of the testes to produce physiological concentrations of testosterone and or a normal amount of sperm due to disease at one or more areas of the hypothalamic pituitary testicular axis. So abnormalities at the level of the testes that we call that primary hypogonadism, whereas defects in the hypothalamus or the pituitary cause secondary or tertiary hypogonadism. There are multiple different guidelines uh, available. Again, I reviewed at least nine of them that I can recall. Uh, some of them refer to male hypogonadism as testosterone deficiency syndrome, TDS, whereas other ones refer to this as male hypogonadism. The terms are interchangeable. I don't have a sense of like where the field is moving, uh, you know, like just like in the obesity field, obesity medicine, it's like adiposity-based chronic disease versus obesity. Like yeah. I don't get a sense it seems, of what... Yeah, I'm not sure where things are headed either. It seems to me that hypogonadism is maybe a little bit of a broader diagnosis in that it can also incorporate the sperm uh, issues, whereas testosterone deficiency would not necessarily incorporate, you know, insufficient sperm production. Uh, although, I mean, the things are related, so it's who knows, but I yeah. don't really care. <laughs> that'll, that'll actually become important later on. So never, nevertheless, whether uh, for male hypogonadism or testosterone deficiency syndrome, the basic diagnostic criteria across all gu guidelines are broadly similar. A combination of clinical symptoms with biochemical evidence of low testosterone, plus an impact on physical health and well-being. And that's important not only the clinical symptoms, but it also has to have an effect. And so there's this condition called exercise hypogonadal male condition, where effectively these elite athletes have what would be biochemical evidence of low testosterone, but they have no overt clinical symptoms and it doesn't cause an impact on their physical health or well-being. As far as like why their testosterone levels are low, some of it's due to well, they were doing a lot of sweating, so their plasma volume has expanded. We also see like a decline in production of testosterone, but they keep up with that by increasing in the androgen receptor sensitivity. And so their function is grossly normal. And so you're like, is this hypogonadism or is it just a lab value? So got to have more than just a lab value. You need a lab value, you need clinical signs and symptoms, plus an impact on your physical health and well-being, which again would help you determine what additional testing and workup would be necessary for diagnosis. So there are three broad categories of symptoms that people may have with uh, male hypogonadism or testosterone deficiency syndrome. There are specific symptoms, suggestive symptoms, and then non-specific symptoms. So specific symptoms include incomplete or delayed sexual development. So during like the adolescent years, pubertal years, and before, uh, yeah, in incomplete or delayed sexual development would be a sign of either like androgen receptor insensitivity, low testosterone, absent testosterone, things of that nature, uh, loss of body hair, uh, and or very small testes. Uh, there are suggestive symptoms like reduced sexual desire and libido decreased spontaneous erections and or erectile dysfunction, fertility issues, so a low sperm count, for example, a low trauma or no trauma fracture, so bone break, which uh, would also coincide with low bone mineral density. This is like a person, like a 40-year-old dude who like falls over from standing and then fractures a femur. And you're like, how though? Yeah. Uh, unexplained anemia can also be a suggestive sign, but 
there are many, many, many other things that can cause anemia, not just yeah. low testosterone. Yeah, I would, I would say that's nonspecific, but unexplained in the sense of you, you've ruled out all the uh, typical and common causes of anemia, like bleeding and colon cancer and things yeah. like that. And then there are nonspecific signs like decreased energy, motivation, self-confidence, poor concentration or memory, depressed mood, an increase in body fat or difficulty losing body fat. But again, those are all nonspecific, just like there could be so again many other causes but note you basically need to figure out like okay if i'm going to test this person for low testosterone if that's in my differential diagnosis what else is in there because mm-hmm. there almost always other things if there's not other things i, I kind of question the <laughs> clinical <laughs> practice going on unless again you've you've really done your due diligence and you're like i don't i don't even know now i'm just gonna send a a total testosterone because everything else has been negative and I've thoroughly worked this person up. I guess I could see that, but I, I would say there is always, there are always other things on the list of possibilities. The only situation I can think of where there's not another list, uh, another possibility on the list is if you are a, uh, a strength coach <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> and you do yeah. not have the capacity to think of other possibilities <laughs> other than testosterone for everything. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so those are the symptoms. And again, specific to nonspecific and, and everything in between, uh, as far as the biochemical evidence of low testosterone, testosterone in male hypogonadism or testosterone deficiency syndrome, this sort of cutoff level varies widely by society. So the American Academy of Clinical Endocrinologists, their cutoff is 200 nanograms per deciliter, whereas the International Society of Sexual Medicine is 350 nanograms per deciliter. There's no agreed upon lower limit like, oh, you're below this level. We got to work you up. Um, so effectively, when if somebody tells me like, yeah, I got a value of 260 nanograms per deciliter on a total testosterone test. My first question is, why'd you get your testosterone level checked? And they're like, well, my doctor said I should just send it. And I'm like, but why though? Because it, without signs or symptoms, I'm like, I, I have no idea like what, why we're doing this. And so what other things could be causing this? So there are a number of other like medical conditions that can you know, result in low testosterone and that may be causing these signs and symptoms, but if no signs and symptoms, I'm like, I don't, I don't have no idea what to do with this. Then when was it measured? And like, if it is low or borderline low, when's the follow-up for the repeat test? Assuming that there are signs, symptoms, and a negative effect on your life. So many questions. This is just a typical thing that I've talked about on, on some other podcasts about, you know, people's overconfidence in interpreting their own blood tests as far as knowing what it means and uh, like without actually knowing all the underlying physiology and feedback loops. And, um, you know, additionally, one thing that we haven't talked about in this podcast is the idea that testosterone has to bind a receptor. And these receptors are proteins that are coded by, you know, our genes and there can be variation and uh, in these receptors leading to differences in receptor sensitivity. And so I haven't seen like great data on this, but it, it seems very, very plausible to me that people who have highly, highly sensitive testosterone receptors, they would probably walk around feeling great at a relatively low blood testosterone concentration because their receptors are really sensitive. It hooks up to that receptor and they're like, cool, I got all I need. And maybe they live at a lower level numerically, but because their receptors are binding it and it's doing its job that they're okay. Whereas somebody who has less sensitive receptors, receptors that do not bind it as readily and let it do its thing, they might actually naturally through that feedback process gravitate towards a slightly higher level. And they would also feel fine. But when you're only looking at one side of this equation, because we don't have a way to measure people's receptor sensitivity, and this is, you know, for somewhat speculative, um, then, then you know, we're only looking at half of the, the picture here and putting all of the interpretive kind of emphasis on just that blood measurement. So I that that's a big part of why 
it's not possible to interpret these numbers if somebody has no issues going on. Don't yeah. check it. <laughs> yeah. So a few things. So one, that EHMC exercise hypogonadal male condition, one of the plausible, the proposed mechanisms by why these people don't have signs or symptoms of hypogonadism is because they're like more sensitive to their circulating testosterone. Um, they talk about this a little bit in the the book, the testosterone and unauthorized biography. It's a pretty, I'm going to, I'm going to give it an okay rating. It just, it's, it's pretty in depth. And if you're not like super keyed up on testosterone yeah. and controversy surrounding it, it's like, yeah, we get it. This could have been, this could have been <laughs> a, a 30 page, you know, pamphlet. Uh, but I thought it was a good read. In any case, there is some talk or some discussion of trying to create like an anabolic or an androgenic sort of sensitive, like score. So based on like, you're measuring one thing and correlating it to a particular testosterone level to be like, oh, this person has this level of androgenicity or anabolic sort of sensitivity. And it's like, okay, well, we're just going to make up stuff and see what like if we can validate anything. But yeah, at present, there's no way to determine how sensitive people are to yeah. cir circulating androgens. Um, okay. So in saying all that, no, no agreed upon lower limit connected to clinical outcomes uh, or biochemical evidence. And it varies based on um, the international organization. So somewhere though, between like 200 and 350 is kind of that bio biochemical sort of evidence of male hypogonadism pr provided somebody has signs, symptoms and a negative impact on their life. As far as the prevalence or so how often does this happen? It's been estimated to be somewhere between six to 12%, depending on the study population and the degree of diagnostic rigor that's going on within those studies. Uh, in general, this is low quality evidence because the majority of the epidemiological studies are based on sperm production issues. So just like in male infertility, low sperm count, et cetera. And they often have normal testosterone. So it's like, is this male hypogonadism or is it just, you know, infertility? And if so, like, mightn't that be due to something else other than low testosterone, particularly if they have normal testosterone levels. So I don't know if I can tell you how often this is occurring uh, in a confident level. And I don't know that anybody else can either. As far as known causes, there are a ton of them. Some of them are congenital. So things like Kleinfelter syndrome, which is actually like the most common congenital type of, you know, you're born with it. It's like five in every 10,000 live, live births, but maybe even higher because sometimes they have, it's like on a, uh, it could be like a lower level uh, of Kleinfelter syndrome, maybe more like 10 to 25 per 10,000. Um, so just pretty common. Uh, and in fact, is like if you work somebody up thoroughly, for hypogonadism, and it looks like their uh, LH and FSH levels are also low, you might actually screen them, do a, a genetic test to be like, oh, you actually have Kleinfelter syndrome. Um, you can be born without testes. Uh, Down syndrome also is a known cause of hypogonadism, like 10 to 30 uh, per 10,000 live births. Um, typically, uh, have normal T when they go through puberty, but then it declines later on and have low levels of spermatogenesis and a bunch of other syndromes whose names I will forget. Noonan syndrome. You remember that? No, I don't. Okay. But I don't, I don't do pediatrics. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, it, there are acquired disorders that either injure, uh, or can like infiltrate. So things like, uh, compromising the anatomy of the testes uh, or the hypothalamus or the pituitary gland or all of these things. Um, but things like you might expect testicular cancer, trauma or infection to the testes, which is called orchitis. Uh, traumatic brain injury is like one of these 
it's not new because it's been happening since the beginning of, you know, <laughs> the human species, but it's been increasingly recognized as one of the more common causes of like acquired male hypogonadism, iron overload, hemochromatosis, prostate cancer therapy, pituitary adenoma. And so like the classic boards question was like, you know, young male presents with signs of what would be consistent with male hypogonadism and a visual deficit. You're like, and then the question is like, what's your next move? And you're like, Okay, I gotta get a total testosterone. I gotta get FSH, LH, and I gotta get an MRI of the pituitary gland just to make sure they don't have uh, a macroadenoma. And then different drugs. Um, uh, so certain anticonvulsants can cause elevations in prolactin levels. So hyperprolactinemia uh, can cause itself low testosterone. Uh, corticosteroids, which are not the cool kind of steroids, they're steroids that people take for autoimmune diseases and other conditions. Chemotherapy, opioids, the list. I mean, we could do a whole section on just the pharmacology behind acquired hypogonadism, but there are a lot of, of things there. Um, as far as risk factors for sort of uh, acquired hypogonadism later in life, um, again, opioid use, like we just said, androgen use. So if somebody is taking anabolic steroids um, and then has been off of them for a period of time, it is likely that their testosterone level will be low until they recover if they recover total testosterone levels, uh, alcohol use, particularly alcohol abuse. Um, we have a podcast on that sleep apnea, cancer of various types, diabetes, obesity, HIV infection, uh, you know, sleep restriction. There's just lots, lots, lots of things. Uh, in any case, there's still, there's a, lar a lack of large systematic studies though, really about like thoroughly evaluating risk factors and sort of like the risk potential. So for example, sickle cell anemia is cited as a known cause of hypogonadism, but it's only reported in different case series. So a small collection of medical studies and the prevalence by which sickle cell uh, disease causes hypogonadism is unknown despite 300 to 400,000 births a year in sub-Saharan Africa with people that have sickle cell disease. You'd expect if it was this huge like cause that it might, you know, have a, a increased signal if these people were being tested for male hypogonadism. So maybe that's the problem. In, in any case, it's just not been thoroughly investigated enough with the rigor that you would expect, uh, considering how confidently people feel about testosterone replacement therapy uh, on the internet. Uh, in any case, a lot of different causes. Um, but as far as the workup, Austin, I'm going to let you do your thing here because we're going to first just start this conversation with screening. Should the male population be screened for hypogonadism? Just everybody gets tested. No. no. Next question. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Move on. Okay. Well, here's the thing though. Why shouldn't I get tested? Well, I just want to know. Yeah. And honestly, that's not an argument that I really care to engage. If somebody wants to go spend their money and get a test, that's fine. Um, they can do whatever they want. I'm not here to like restrict people from being able to do what they want with this kind of thing. I think that there are clear downsides to getting tests that are not clearly indicated from a standpoint of cost and inconvenience and time. And, and then the ultimately resulting with getting potentially getting test results that are unhelpful or can lead you down a wrong path. And so this is in particular, like, let's say, so let's say somebody even does have symptoms and all they get is a testosterone measurement and it's low. And they're like, well, just put me on testosterone and it'll fix everything. It's like, well, nobody thought about this. Nobody took a history or maybe did an exam or anything like that to get a sense of, you know, maybe this person's symptoms, maybe they're just tired and they're tired because they have uh, no immune system because they have HIV, <laughs> but all they checked was testosterone. And the lowest testosterone measure I've ever seen was in a patient who I had in residency who had 
AIDS that basically an undetectable testosterone measurement. It was like effectively zero. And the person felt okay, <laughs> which was amazing to me. But d that aside, it requires somebody to think about what is this person's issue and what could be you know, consistent with it and doing that whole thing rather than just checking one thing and being potentially led astray, putting them on testosterone and missing the bigger, the bigger problem. If you feel completely fine and you're like, I just want to get numbers, okay, like I don't think that there's any clinical utility to that. And additionally, you can be led astray not only if you get some kind of a false positive, false negative type result, but also accounting for all that variation, that analytic variation, that biological variation. You're just going to like freak yourself out unnecessarily if it dips by 50 points by thinking that that's real, or you're going to pat yourself on the back thinking that you're doing awesome if it goes up by 50 points. None of that even mattered. <laughs> None of it is real. So I don't think it's worth the time and effort. I think there are way better things to do with your time and money and, and, and effort. Um, and so that's in general, I think that widespread screening indiscriminate of signs or symptoms or anything else is not wise for the vast majority of things outside of like blood pressure and blood lipids. <laughs> yeah. Maybe body weight. But again, yeah. that assumes that some, that's a, that's a sign. Gonna, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, so as far as screening, yeah, the, these international organizations uh, do not recommend that people get screened. Everybody gets screened rather they're doing, you know, dedicated testing based on somebody's presentation. So the Endocrine Society, for example, recommends evaluation of testosterone levels for men deemed to be at increased risk of happy, having hypogonadism that are also likely to benefit from testosterone replacement therapy, such as those with low libido, erectile dysfunction, infertility, HIV-associated weight loss, osteoporosis, or low trauma fracture, history of anabolic steroid use, or opioids, or other drugs or substances that affect testosterone production or metabolism. There's additional recommendations depending on the different guidelines uh, that you're looking at, uh, for example, to evaluate total testosterone levels in those with obesity, uh, with like a BMI greater than 30 or waist circumference greater than 102 centimeters or 40 inches, uh, those with type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome. Those are just basically uh, conditions that are known to cause uh, so some lower testosterone levels. The treatment is actually super interesting here because they call that like a functional male hypogonadism. And effectively, the recommendation is uh, instead of prescribing testosterone to start is a trial of lifestyle medicine <laughs> to see if you can correct the underlying uh, sort of condition. Yeah. So, so I think that, you know, it's interesting. This guideline, I would suspect if you talk to the vast majority of primary care folks, they are not routinely screening individuals with obesity or diabetes for low no, testosterone. No, you got to be at 30 or 10 at a T yeah, level. I do not see that happening in practice. And as you mentioned, I think that if somebody did check it on that basis, I would be unsurprised if it were low and the correct management is still the same correct management as it would be for obesity mm -hmm. and diabetes, focusing on, you know, addressing that issue as a way to thereby improve the testosterone measurement. I've seen countless times uh, facilitating weight loss, getting better control of diabetes or other conditions like that, leading to substantial increases in uh, testosterone levels in people. Um, and so that would be my preferred initial strategy is trying to facilitate weight loss through all the ways that we've talked about on prior podcasts, be it lifestyle, meds, surgery, et cetera, um, or treating the diabetes. However, I will also say that there is some evidence that um, among people in this situation with obesity and type 2 diabetes, that initiating them on testosterone replacement therapy can also lead to some improvements in those things. Um, I would say that that is not standard practice, but just being, you know, real with the data that we have. Um, uh, again, I don't think that, that is going to be routine practice for most folks, but, um, but yeah, that's kind of what it is. Okay. So that's like the workup as far as the diagnosis goes, many guidelines recommend diagnosing and considering offering TRT on the basis of just a serum testosterone level alone. But again, there's no agreed upon cutoff. Uh, and so I've 
favor the endocrine society's sort of guidelines here, like where you would want um, not only the clinical signs and symptoms associated with uh, male hypogonadism, but also the negative impact on the individual's life. And then they have this additional uh, cutoff point of 264 nanograms per deciliter. So I just, again, making the diagnosis based on just a number, I think is short-sighted and I would favor uh, the endocrine society's guidelines based on some of the other ones that I've, I've looked up. Um, it should be noted that clinicians are not recommended to test men for testosterone deficiency who have or are recovering again from acute illness or engaged in short-term use of medications like opioids that suppress testosterone concentrations. You're just going to, yeah, you're going to get the weird value. And then you're like, I don't know what to do with this. And you're like, yeah, me either. Uh, as far as what should be tested first, again, it's a serum total testosterone. But again, it probably shouldn't be sent in isolation. Just like, yeah, we're just going to send this off. That's the only thing it could be. Should be, again, based on the clinical signs, symptoms, the medical history of the person. Um, it's going to be a battery of tests based mm -hmm. on, on those signs and symptoms. Uh, as far as if that first test comes back low or borderline low, then things get interesting. Then things get interesting. So the repeat measurement should also have, again, an, again a, a total testosterone, but also should have either a free testosterone that's directly measured by that by the equilibrium dialysis or a calculated free testosterone uh, in conditions that have abnormal steroid hormone binding globulin. Again, those conditions are like obesity, diabetes, kidney disease, hypo or hyperthyroid, HIV, liver disease, et cetera. Uh, once the diagnosis of hypogonadism is confirmed, then you go down another rabbit hole. Now you got to figure out why. Okay, so testosterone levels are low. What do we do now? So you want to measure LH and FSH, uh, and then potentially like a thyroid panel, prolactin, iron panel, and consider a brain MRI if uh, either prolactin levels come back high or if there's a pituitary problem um, uh, or other signs associated with that. Uh, primary hypogonadism, which again is this sort of uh, decreased function of the testes themselves, will tend to have a high LH, luteinizing hormone, and FSH. Uh, basically, that means your pituitary gland and your hypothalamus are doing their normal thing, but the testes are like, nah, dog, I'm good. Yeah, this is this is primary testicular failure, and so when the testes fail, the other the, the lack of feedback by testosterone to those higher areas in the pituitary and the hypothalamus leads them to start screaming at the testes to make more testosterone, but they failed, so those levels are high. They must be high to diagnose yep. this condition. Yep. Uh, whereas secondary hypogonadism will have normal or low LH and FSH, which basically means the pituitary gland and or the hypothalamus are not responding appropriately, and so now you're like, why though? So depending yeah. on the rest of the clinical picture, that will inform the rest and of the work. Similarly, this is a place where people can get tripped up because not just low FSH and LH, but inappropriately normal FSH and LH, which is the classic med student stump question, um, because the lab value that will come back, it might be solidly within the normal range. And you'll be like, oh, sweet, my FSH and LH are normal. They are not supposed to be normal if your testosterone is actually low because you should have normal feedback to fix it. So this can be another tricky, tricky thing to try to interpret. And another reason why people shouldn't just get their own labs and try to interpret them themselves. <laughs> Agreed. All right. So all of that, you've di been diagnosed with male hypogonadism. You've been appropriately worked up and now it's time to treat. So let's assume that there's nothing else medically going on that requires further management that is ultimately causing the hypogonadism. It's just isolated male hypogonadism. So what do? The goal here is to recover 
and or maintain secondary sex characteristics and correct the symptoms of testosterone deficiency. So whatever the person, the negative effects on their life and well-being. So as far as who gets treated, again, it's the people uh, who have signs and symptoms uh, of male hypogonadism, the biochemical evidence of low testosterone and the negative effect on their life. Uh, and again, the guidelines here range all over the place as far as the you know, sort of the pet projects, the people who get treated or whatever, but they all basically affirm that testosterone placement is indicated with a verified diagnosis of hypogonadism. The presence of clinical symptoms combined with the unequivocal biochemical finding of low testosterone, provided there are no contraindications to treatment with testosterone. So things like prostate cancer, for example, or other conditions that are like, oh, can't really treat you with testosterone. The most controversial thing here is people with like borderline low uh, testosterone levels. Uh, so it's super controversial. It just depends on which clinical practice guidelines your doctor happens to be up on if they're up on any at all. And so they're just markedly different recommendations. This is probably most applicable, not only to our listenership, but the population at large, because the, probably the biggest driver of reduced testosterone levels in the population is going to be chronic medical conditions, particularly obesity and overweight. And so some rec some guidelines are saying, oh, you can do a trial of TRT plus lifestyle. Other guidelines are saying just do lifestyle and weight and then re reassess. And so it just kind of depends. Um, but yeah, that it, it's kind of all over the place. Austin, do you have a feeling on this? I'm like, yeah, this borderline? would be something I would decide on a case by case basis, but it's actually quite common with a ver variety of other endocrine hormone related conditions. For example, uh, in the spectrum of diabetes, patients with prediabetes, quote unquote, whose glucose or A1C measurements fall in that range, a significant proportion of people who fall in that range, if you just chill and recheck later on, will regress back towards normal blood sugar handling. Similarly, with people who have you know, mildly abnormal thyroid tests, what we call subclinical hypothyroidism. If you just chill and recheck it later on, a significant proportion will normalize on their own. And so those are people who you'd be able to spare treatment, um, who, who you would not necessarily be over, over treating by initiating them on therapy right up front. And so I'm not surprised that in people with kind of borderline test results here, your options could include chilling, rechecking down the line and a significant proportion of people will normalize on their own, which would be, if it were me, preferable compared to initiating a lifelong therapy. Um, other people, they might uh, value things differently and choose and choose a different route when working, you know, with their, with their healthcare uh, professional. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. So as far as the different types of agents, it really depends where you live in the world. Um, in the United States, a bunch of different options here. There are injectables, um, so different forms of testosterone, they tend to be less expensive. They do have flexible dosing. Uh, the bigger problem here is there's more peaks and valleys the way it's administered, uh, and also an increased risk of erythrocytosis, which is a fancy way of saying like your hematocrit and hemoglobin go way up, uh, which is a contraindication to treatment with testosterone. Uh, there's also transdermal gels. Also have flexible dosing, don't have to inject yourself, low risk of erythrocytosis or red blood cell line expansion. Problem here is the potential transfer to somebody else who doesn't want to be on testosterone. Uh, and it also tends to be more expensive. There are other types of delivery systems, pellets, patches, nasal gels, et cetera. I assume this will continue to expand outside of the US. There's all sorts of other stuff that you can you can do as well. But those are like the main ones. Uh Austin, I we're obviously not prescribing people TRT here over the internet, but like, do you have a preferred route of administration or do you say, 
what do you like to do? And he goes, I like needles. And just, he said, yeah, <laughs> yeah. My preferred would be one of the injectables. That's mm-hmm. usually what I use most often. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so after picking an agent, the next, uh, topic here is monitoring. So like what, what do you just set them home and don't do anything else? <laughs> uh, so you're monitoring things like the testosterone levels, uh, their hematocrit levels. Um, what's the first time that you have them come back for a lab draw? Like how soon? Um, since I do not work in an outpatient clinic, this is not something that I'm routinely doing, but if I feel confident in my diagnosis and initial treatment plan, then at some point, probably within the first three months, I would probably want to check in and see how things are going. Yeah. That's the guidelines. They're like within that three to six months of like initiating treatment, get a testosterone level, a hematocrit level. And then if that looks good, you can do it every year after that. Um, ideally you're doing it at the trough level. So if it's an injectable, it's like right before you're going to do another injection just to make sure that, okay, we're, you know, keeping you in the normal range the entire time. Um, and so, yeah, it should be, uh, right before you inject again. And you're looking for the sort of middle level average level of testosterone. You don't want them to be high, like towards the upper end. Just think about this. If somebody came in and they're just about to inject again and their testosterone levels 800, you're like, so that means for the entire week beforehand, your levels were likely super physiological. And now only now are you getting back into range. Similarly, if somebody came in uh, right before they were going to inject and they were like at 150, you're like, maybe we weren't, we, it's not therapeutic enough. And so that's kind of the idea here. Uh, additional things that you can measure, um, you can uh, measure a PSA, prostate specific antigens. There is some risk uh, of prostate cancer. And so if you're doing that, you're looking for a bump. Like if that goes up significantly, you're like, mm, I don't know that I like this. Yeah, that I, th- I think that that's something that you'll also find some controversy around. Um, I personally do not tend to follow those um, because I'm not convinced that this is uh, going to cause that. Um, I think that, uh, it, you know, the, the other question, not necessarily cancer, but could it contribute to some, you know, increase in the size of the prostate and some urinary symptoms and things like that. But a PSA level is not going to help you, you know, determine that or measure that's going to be what the person tells you is going on. Um, so this is going to be also a case by case thing. Some patients are, you know, for whatever reason, very high risk for prostate cancer, and maybe they're going to want to monitor things to be extra, extra safe or whatever the case is. But as a default, I don't think that this is absolutely necessary for all people. Some labs uh, might actually monitor estradiol levels, which is a form of, of estrogen. And so since excess testosterone testosterone can get converted into estradiol. They'll measure this and see if estradiol levels are too high. Some lab, some, some clinicians will just put you on a way on a medicine that'll then suppress the conversion of testosterone to estrogen. Uh, I do not do that. I would suggest that if you're on TRT and your estradiol levels, if they're being checked are too high, it's probably just a sign that the test dosage is too high and that needs mm. to probably come down. Yep. Okay. So now we'll get into risks versus benefits of TRT and then we'll wrap this up. So risks here uh, tend to be around this uh, either erythrocytosis, which is again, just expansion more, you're forming way too many red blood cells, uh, cardiovascular disease and subclinical prostate cancer, uh, not to mention infertility. So with respect to heart disease, the current guidelines state that there are no credible evidence that testosterone increases the risk of cardiovascular events, provided it is prescribed appropriately to men with a well-founded diagnosis of hypogonadism. And just to repeat in people, that have correctly diagnosed hypogonadism, we do not think that there's a reliable signal that TRT, again, at the dosing <laughs> that is appropriate for TRT, increases risk of cardiovascular events. So things like heart attack, stroke, et cetera. Uh, but if you administer it inappropriately, 
then things go off the rails. So two landmark clinical trials raise safety concerns about cardiovascular events when testosterone was prescribed to older men having a primary diagnosis of age-related frailty or having, quote-unquote, functional hypogonadism associated with obesity, type 2 diabetes, or metabolic syndrome. These are people who did not meet clinical criteria for male hypogonadism, yet were given testosterone. And this is a question we get all the time. It seems like it's like every other seminar or maybe every seminar and you just call them. It's like, yeah, well, what about like an older person who's like not, you know, in good shape? Like, Mightn't it actually benefit their health if we put them on a little TRT? And it's like, ooh, I don't know that I can confidently say that, but I do think the risk of cardiovascular disease goes up. Uh, there's also uh, this risk of QT uh, interval shortening, which happens with testosterone administration, but no studies actually evaluated the effect of that. So potentially an issue there with getting a short QT arrhythmia. Uh, infertility is another thing. So Again, as I referenced earlier, some of the male infra, uh, male uh, contraceptives uh, that are being tested right now are based on testosterone. Uh, but you know, if uh, an individual was taking TRT, uh, they are effectively have a very low chance of uh, being fertile. And with andro- uh, anabolic steroid like abuse, um, there's a prolonged sort of uh, infertility. It looks like with the male hormone contraceptions after they stop taking them, uh, it takes about 12 to 16 months to become fertile again. Uh, and this is like the proposed sort of, uh, time interval it takes for people like using anabolic steroids, but that really hasn't been evaluated. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think my, my take overall on the safety piece is for people who are, you know, accurately diagnosed and reasonably dosed with replacement, if that is the route they choose, it is actually quite safe and, yeah, it, and beneficial. And I yeah. do not have great safety concerns around the use of it um, when it's used appropriately. I, I do have more concerns when people are not appropriately evaluated in the first place mm. or if the dosing is just nonsensical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, there, as far as the benefits, I, 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 uh, I think the take home that I want to give people is that if in people who have signs and symptoms of hypogonadism who are appropriately worked up, and that appropriately managed and monitored net benefit for treatment in general. But I also wouldn't ascribe any like, uh, you know, crazy claims like TRT is a panacea. It's a game changer. So for example, people are like, oh, if, and when you get older, you need to take TRT. It's a nootropic. You're going to have cognitive benefits. Uh, but when you actually evaluate the data on this, there's really no change in cognitive function compared to placebo. There's a really interesting study um, where it was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial to investigate whether testosterone administration for three years would improve cognitive function in men aged 60 years or older with low to low normal serum testosterone levels with no identified uh, disease of the testicles or the hypothalamus or pituitary gland. No difference between the placebo group and the folks getting TRT. it's just like, again, if you have people who have signs and symptoms and are appropriately diagnosed and they're appropriately treated, benefit. Good. Thumbs up. But like, let's not pretend that this is like a miracle drug. Okay, let's wrap this up. Take home here. Testosterone levels vary widely for men, but the most common like normal levels are between 300 to 800 nanograms per deciliter. There's significant biological and analytical variance when you test it. So it can be comparing two different numbers. You got to take that into consideration. The secular trend may be going down for total testosterone, but this is likely due to chronic disease 
uh, like overweight, obesity, type two diabetes, et cetera, not some sort of like environmental cause or like, as, as some people would say, the pussification of <laughs> the population, probably not happening. Uh, appropriate testing is beneficial for those with specific signs and symptoms associated with male hypogonadism, but general screening is not advised. After the appropriate testing and workup, there are many treatment options, but again, testosterone is not like this panacea that treats everything. The risk-benefit profile depends on who's being treated and for what, but in general, if you have hypogonadism without any other contraindications and there's no underlying cause that is correctable, uh, yeah, then treatment's probably beneficial, but you should suss that out with your doctor and not the guy that works at the gold gym that you're freaking <laughs> Yeah. Any any other pearls you want to leave uh, the, the listeners with? I think I hammered the things that I care about the most. <laughs> I, I agree. All right. Well, that's a wrap on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. This is episode 228 TRT. Make sure you check out uh, the links to the different studies that we reviewed here in the description below. Also, if you want to join us at a live event, links to that as well. Uh, new merchandise on the website, new article on the website, uh, and check out our sponsors as well. But before you go anywhere, wherever you're listening to this, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. From everyone here at Barbell Medicine, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. We'll see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Podcast.